Hey guys, I'm Jordan. Would you flip open your Bibles with me to Philippians 4? Um, we love the Bible. We think the Bible carries the authority, not any one individual person. So uh, would you look at it with me? We're going to be in Philippians 4. And I want to point out uh, two commands from this section of Scripture. Are you ready for them? Rejoice always. Second one, do not be anxious about anything. How you doing? <laughs> so, I, I, I mean, that's how I felt reading this. Uh, I, okay, I know of, I, I can't think of few other or any other commands in Scripture that would be so universally accepted as desirable. Right? So, there's almost no commands in Scripture that you could walk up to an atheist or someone from any worldview or from a different culture and go, here's the command. But if you walk up to almost anyone and say, hey, you should rejoice always and you should never be anxious again, there's not anyone that's going to push back on you on that. Everyone wants it. Everyone in this room, I would say, the primary pursuit of your life and of everyone you know is to rejoice always. Right, so you might think it's, it's your career or a relationship or something like that, the thing that you're really passionate about. Why are you passionate about that thing? Because you think it will bring you joy. And so it's this universal pursuit, universally accepted as good, yet when any of us look at it and go, am I doing that? Am I rejoicing always? Am I never anxious? I don't think any of us could say, yeah, I got that. I'm doing that command. And I think there's probably a few reasons for that. One of them is, I don't know if we believe that it's possible. We just hear that and it sounds so foreign to us. And, and maybe for some of us, and in particular for someone that doesn't know Jesus, maybe there's just, we don't even know where to start. What would it even look like to pursue a life like that? I think in particular with joy, everyone's trying. We just don't know where to go for it. We don't know what a working strategy would be. So let me just make a couple observations quickly and then we'll zoom back out. But specifically, I want to make a couple observations on verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it again, rejoice. Now, I already said this, but I want you to catch this. This is a command. That's wild for us. We don't typically think about joy or joying, rejoicing as a command. We think of it as something that we feel. So if things are going well in your life or according to plan, maybe you are rejoicing, but if things aren't going well, then you are not feeling joyful. But here, joy is a verb. It's something you do. There's something inside of you that you are able to access and to bring out joy. And I want you to pay attention to the modifier there that is what makes us, I mean, that in and of itself would be staggering, but listen to this modifier. When do you joy? always. Think about the things that are included in always. That, I, that is staggering. That's, that's hard enough for us to get our mind around what that would look like in our lives and in this culture. But then I want you to think about that this is a universal truth and command to everyone on the planet. So if you are a Christian in Afghanistan right now, hiding in caves because you're afraid for your life. What is the command to you? Rejoice. 
in some senses that's beautiful. I think in other ways that's hard for us because it feels just odd to command something like that regardless of circumstances. But I want to point this out at the front. This is not minimizing the reality of suffering. The Bible is very honest about suffering. It talks a lot about lament, weeping with those who weep, mourning with those who mourn. This is not trite spirituality, ignoring the problems of the world. It's not minimizing our circumstances or the brutal reality of suffering in the world. It's maximizing the radiant beauty of Jesus Christ. It's, it's coming to full terms with how bad it can get in this place. But even when it's that bad, Jesus is that much better. That's what he is arguing in this text. And when you are in Christ, you have access to a completely new plane of existence where it is possible for you to rejoice in any circumstances and not worry. Okay, so that's a little teaser of where we're primarily going, but I got to zoom out because there's also other parts of this text that I'm supposed to cover. We're going to hit them quick, and then we're going to get back in there, okay? Uh, so the text today is starting in verse 2 through verse 9. It breaks up primarily into three sections, verses 2 and 3, then verses 4 through 7, then verses 8 through 9. Uh, the context of this is starting in verse 1, where it says to stand firm in the Lord. In other words, maintain your Christianity, walk with Jesus for the rest of your life. How do you do that? Well, primarily, you forgive like a Christian, verses 2 through 3. You rejoice like a Christian, verses 4 through 7. And you think like a Christian, verses 8 through 9. So quickly, verses 2 and 3. This starts out with Paul talking about an argument that was happening between two people in the church. Think about how staggering that is. This letter is quite short. So Paul is giving this brief synopsis of how he wants these people to follow Jesus that will be uh, held throughout the rest of history as Scripture, and he gets into the weeds on a little argument that a couple people are having with each other. That, we would not have seen that coming. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that Christian unity is of primary importance. And bickering has no place within the church. So very simply, if you're a Christian and you're arguing or bitter towards anyone, stop. You're a Christian. Jesus has forgiven you of everything you have ever done. Unforgiveness and bitterness is incompatible with the Christian life. So today... Resolve that, you're a Christian. The second section, rejoice like a Christian, four through seven. That's where we're going to spend our time today. So we'll circle back to that for essentially the rest of the time. But I want to briefly look at verses eight and nine. Think like a Christian. Here's what it says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you think about matters. It, it, it makes a difference in your life. So part of your Christian responsibility is funneling what goes into your mind and what doesn't. That's not something that you just do for your children. That's something that you do for you as a Christian because what you think about shapes you. Now, we think a lot, I, I think, about 
what things shouldn't go in our minds, right? Sort of the, the impure things that we shouldn't pursue as Christians. And you should think about that. You should think about that as you watch Netflix. It, it matters. But this text is primarily about what you fill your mind up with. You fill it up with whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure. Now, this isn't just some sort of simplistic advice about think happy thoughts. And if you think happy thoughts, you'll be happy. He's saying intentionally cultivate in your mind a, a thought life of things that are pure and good and beautiful and righteous. Why? Because if you think about anything like that in the world, it all points back to God himself. That's how amazing and beautiful God is, is that anything good in life is a reflection of his nature and his character. Therefore, if you meditate on beautiful things in this world, it will draw you back to his character and his goodness. You will be abiding in him. Now, by the way, what you think about is related to anxiety, which is what we'll be talking about for a good chunk of this time. Look, practically speaking, if you spend a good chunk of your day every day thinking about the news in the world and meditating on what's going wrong and that being a consistent source of your thought life and information, whether it's on official news sources or whether it's on social media, things that you're thinking about, you inevitably will become an anxious person. You are meditating on things that are anxiety-inducing. So should you know what's going on in the world as a Christian? Yes, but do you need to know every single day, every detail that's going on? No, and I, I would actually argue, this is not Bible, this is just Jordan, I would argue that's actually unproductive for your spiritual life. It will be anxiety-inducing. Try it this week. Read the news once. Clear up thought space in your mind. Spend it with Jesus. See what it does in your life and in your body. All right, so let's get back to that section that we're going to spend most of our time on, verses 4 through 7. Let me read it to you. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, that is an incredibly famous New Testament text for good reason. But I think something can happen when we've encountered texts before is we can miss a lot of what's going on in them because it sounds familiar. But there's a ton packed into this little paragraph. And I think we should have some questions coming out of it. For example, what does it mean, verse 5, to let your reasonableness be made known to everyone? What does that have to do with joy and anxiety? He says, the Lord is at hand. Where did that comment come from? How does it work in the structure? What's the relationship between joy and anxiety and peace, which he mentions all of those things? So we've got to pay attention to things like that. So as I try to unpack a, a section of Scripture, and I'm not totally sure at first reading what it means, one thing that's helpful for me is I'll ask myself the question, what are the imperatives? Or another word is, what are the commands what am I supposed to do as a result of this text? And once I find those, typically surrounding them are the means by which 
you can follow that command. And then the results of if you obey what your life will look like, if you disobey what your life will look like. So I want to break it down that way today. And I think there's two primary commands. There's more than that, but I think there's two primary commands in this section. And it's the ones I mentioned at the beginning, to rejoice and to not be anxious. And so I think the question we need to ask is, are those two separate things or do they function as primarily the same thing in this text? And I think the answer is they function primarily the same way. They're within one thought that Paul is giving. And I think some of that works like this, is that anxiety is the opposite of joy, and joy is the opposite of anxiety. If you're rejoicing, you're not likely to be anxious. If you're anxious, you're not likely to be rejoicing. So the primary command is, hey, be joyful always and never be anxious. They go together. So then the question is, what's the means? So I think the means to lack of anxiety is let your requests be made known to God. And the result, if you do that, will be one that your reasonableness will be made known and that you will experience peace. So this is, this is where I want to go today is we're going to look at the command, the means, and then the results. So first, let's look at that main command. What are we to do? Again, verse 6, rejoice in the Lord always. And then verse, sorry, verse 4. And then verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. We talked a little bit about joy already. Let's take do not be anxious about anything. Now, I just wanted to to take a second before we get into this and and sort of share and, and clarify. Anxiety is a it's a polarized topic in, in our culture and I think kind of within Christianity. There's a large discrepancy in views in what um, this text means and in how Christians should handle anxiety. For me, when I hear this command, it's both encouraging to me, but it's also really hard for me. I, in my temperament, I'm more prone to anxiety. And at times, I am, I am willfully, actively indulging that. In other words, I'm sinning. Um, at other times, it feels almost out of my control. It's like I don't even realize it's happening. I just sort of start to think, and I'm like, I'm anxious, I'm stressed. I didn't even know that that was happening. I wasn't indulging it. It it sort of came on me. And at times, there can be a little bit of kind of a triumphalistic spirit within Christianity where we, I think we oversimplify the nuance and the complexity of trying to follow, follow Jesus in a broken world. Jesus is establishing his kingdom on earth, but it's not fully established yet. That's what he's going to do, but we still live in a very fallen world where our biology is inclined towards brokenness and sin. And so sometimes it can be a little overly simplistic when someone is suffering to just drop rejoice, rejoice always on them. It can be overly simplistic when somebody is struggling maybe with clinical anxiety to just look at them and say, don't be anxious. Now, I think that's part of what we do as Christians, but I think there's other legitimate means to help us follow Jesus, like medication or seeing a therapist. We're not against that within Christianity. Um, And so there's some complexity here, but here's what I know in myself and what I believe to be true from this text is even when there's some things that feel outside of my control within my anxiety, 
there's definitely ways that I indulge it, that I spiral. And so I'm often tempted towards anxiety, and then I live as if that's the reality, and I spiral in on myself. But one of the observations from this text is he's talking about anxiety because, inevitably, the Philippians struggled with anxiety. He gives the command because of the presence of anxiety in the church. And so I think more of what this is for is when you feel anxiety in your body, what do you do with it? How do you follow Jesus at that point? When you've, be, when you've been tempted to disbelieve, what do you do with that anxiety? So do not be anxious about anything. Feel the scope of that. Have you, have you dared to even attempt that or to believe that that could be true? This isn't just a nice little catchphrase that Paul doesn't actually mean for us to follow. This, this is something that the Christian life should look like. Have you dared to try? Is that something that you think about in our culture that just accepts anxiety as the norm? We live in a culture that, that fairly constantly lives in a state of heightened anxiety. But I think it's hard for us to think about not being an anxious person because our anxiety feels justified in this world. So it, it, it feels like the appropriate response to what's real around us, to what's going on, right? So you, so you might think something along the lines of like, the reality of my situation is that I don't have enough money, therefore I, I need to worry. Like I can't imagine a life where I'm not responding to that or the reality of my circumstances that my family member is, is dying. And so of course that is anxiety inducing. The reality is that the world has seemingly lost its collective mind and that things feel like they're, they're crumbling. And, I, and I'm, I'm anxious about that. That seems like a justified, logical response. Because those things feel so real, anxiety, therefore, feels real. But what this text would say to us is, no, the reality is that the Lord is at hand. Verse 5. It, it's, it's almost end times terminology that he's, Jesus is at the gate. His kingdom is breaking in to earth. His goodness and his righteousness where everything is good and right in him and therefore no anxiety needs to exist is busting into this place. Fully, no, not yet, but it will happen forever and we have that hope and we see some of that reality now. And it's not just verse 5, it's, look at verse 4. How can you rejoice because of what you're rejoicing in? Always is a modifier of rejoice, but that modifier is dependent on what comes right before it, which is in the Lord. The way that you rejoice is that you have a life in Jesus Christ, and nothing takes him from you, and he is not rattled by anything. Jesus is always true. He is always there. He's ruling over the universe at peace. It's easy for him. It's not hard. He's not taken aback by everything. Everything goes according to his plan. Everyone and everything has to ask him for permission before they can do anything. He is king. He is Lord. And he is beautiful and he's good and he's out for your good. You can rejoice always because you're in Christ. And regardless of what's happening in your circumstances, you always have him. 
And so you, to a degree, are insulated from the circumstances in your life. Not perfectly, yes, of course you experience them as everyone else does, but you have a hope that no one else has access to, and you have a present relationship in him that no one else has access to. Because he's there, your experience of the circumstances change. It's not just an abstract reality. It matters in your life. And it's why you can rejoice and never be anxious is because you have him. So the other day, a couple weeks ago, I, um, I got to go out on a boat with my family and we were with the, the Stevenson family. And uh, Graham is uh, absolutely terrified of water. The dude is almost three and bath time is a nightmare every single day. Uh, just like screams, like just terrified of water. So boats have been a little bit of a challenge. Um, he's, he's grown to the place where he can get on a boat, but the suggestion of getting into the water is met quickly with, no, 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 not, not just one no, like several. And so we were out on the boat. The Stevenson, we, we threw the, the anchor down. The Stevenson kids are just jumping off the boat everywhere. I'm like, Graham, you want to go in the water? No, 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 no. And so eventually I'm like, well, I'm going in then. And so I jumped in for a swim. I'm hanging out, whatever. And then somebody called me back to the boat. I'm like, what's going on? I swim back over and they're like, Jordan, Graham wants to get in the water. I was like, no way. So I'm like, Graham, you want to get in? Thinking he's going to give me the no. And he goes, yes. (laughs) So I got up in the boat and I threw him overboard and said, swim, kid. No. I didn't do that. I got him and I held him in the water. Now, why was Graham able to get in the water? Was it because he's no longer afraid of water? No, bath time would tell you he is still afraid of water. But it's because I was there. And he watched me do it. And because I was holding him, he could feel safe. Are the circumstances of our lives at times very scary? Absolutely. But you're a Christian, which means you're in Christ. And Jesus is in you. He doesn't throw you overboard and say, swim, kid. You're acting like that's the reality of your life, but he's holding you, and he's strong. As awesome as that story is, here's what the bummer was, is he was in the water for like two seconds. He was looking at me for like two seconds and then he started looking around and he went in the boat, in the boat, in the boat. What happened? He forgot that I was holding him and he looked around at the waves and the water and he got afraid. And so his experience of that same reality changed. Two seconds ago, he was safe and he knew he was safe. When he was asking to get in the boat, he was still safe, but he didn't know he was safe. So he's afraid. That's what we're like. We're always safe in Christ. But we often think that we're not because we're not seeing him. I heard Mark Aaron, a pastor uh, in our network, say anxiety creates a future that is not real. Here's why it's not real. is because when you're imagining a future in anxiety, Jesus isn't there. But that that is never the reality. Jesus is always there in the future and therefore it changes what your experience of that future will be. 
The reality is Christ, not a life without him. So what are the means by which we cannot be anxious? Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So we mentioned before, when you feel that anxiety surge in your body, what do you do with it? The answer is you pray it. Tim Keller has said you can stuff your tears, you can vent your tears, or you can pray your tears. Either way, you have tears in life. Either way, things go horribly wrong in this life. But you can either stuff it and pretend like you're fine, which we te- we, we're tempted to think that's the Christian response, Or you can vent your tears. You can just talk about how difficult your life is and hope that that helps, which it doesn't. It just escalates the anxiety. Or you can pray them. In other words, you can turn over your fears to God. You can be honest with him about that brokenness and that terror in your soul. And you can let him begin to heal it. And and I just, I want to say, I think at times within our culture and, and maybe even within our church, prayer can be felt as a cop-out. Like, it's just something you say, like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for that, right? But, but you're not, it doesn't really do anything. It's, it's intangible. But Jesus here is saying that prayer is effective. It's, it's practical. It, it works because it's the means by which you access your unity with Christ. It's through prayer that you get the, the experience of his presence. He's always been there. You don't gain his presence by prayer, but you gain the experience of his presence, the the felt reality of his presence. Prayer is opening a door to to another world, the kingdom of Jesus. Prayer is the wardrobe, and you walk through it into Narnia, experiencing Narnia, experiencing his kingdom. And when we pray, we pray primarily not to get the circumstances to change. We pray to get God He's what we're after. We're after the in Christ. Now, with that said, you can pray and should pray to get your circumstances to change. He tells you to. Look back at verse 6. He's giving you the general category of prayer, but then he gives you the specifics of how you should pray. Supplication and thanksgiving. So supplication, asking God for what you want. I want to encourage you to get bold in the throne room of God. He wants you to ask him for things. He's asked you to ask him for things. Another Graham story. I know they're getting a lot, but I just have a lot of Graham stories, so I'm I'm rolling with them. Um, We, on some Fridays now, have started going to get donuts, and we we get donuts at this place, and then we sit and we watch cars together, and it's fun. um, So we walk into, it's, it's a little bakery, but for him, it's like those, that case of donuts is like twice as tall as he is and it runs the span of the room. So he just walks in and he's just, you know, overwhelmed. And so he looks around and kind of looks at me. We don't eat a ton of sweets, so I think he's like nervous, right? So he looks at me and I'm like, get whatever you want. And just whatever he wants, he gets, right? So imagine if Graham goes and he, he picks out his maple donut And I just go, how dare you, you selfish child? No, of course that's not going to be my response. Because I'm the one that brought him there to get donuts and said, pick out whatever you want. 
God is ushering you into his throne room. And he's saying, ask me for what you want. You're not a burden to him. He delights in giving you good things. Now, our understanding of that is paired with the command to give thanks. So is he always going to give us what we want every time? No, because we don't always ask for what's good for us. We don't always know what's good. So we ask, but we give thanks because giving thanks is a way of saying, God, my circumstances, even now as they're hard for me, are good. You're reinterpreting your life as a gift as you're giving thanks to God. And you're saying, God, I want your will, not mine. And so thank you for enacting your will in my life. I trust you. It's good. So command, rejoice, don't be anxious. It means you, you pray boldly, but with thanksgiving. The results of that are twofold. One of them is primarily an external result, and the other is primarily an internal result. So let's look at the external verse 5. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. So that word reasonableness, I, I think a, a better translation of that is gentleness. So some other uh, translations use the word gentleness. The, the, the cross references uh, are in the pastoral epistles when, when it says that an elder should be gentle uh, and it's, it's contrasting it with kind of quarreling or fighting. So, so the word means... It means mildness, not quarrelsome, uh, not provocative, not angsty. And you can see why this is connected to joy and lack of anxiety. Is when you're a joy-filled person, you're a non-anxious presence. You're, you're reasonable. You're, you're gentle to people that you encounter. And so our presence in the world as Christians should be one of just this this lighthearted peaceableness, this mildness. We should be easy to, to be around. Now, sharp at times on what's true, but, but kind, gentle, peaceable, demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. Is that how you're engaging in the world? Is that how you're engaging in cultural and political conversations? Is that how you're engaging on social media? I think there's a movement right now where Christians are really fighting. We're, we're fighting in the culture for what we believe. And, it, and we might be saying things that are true, but we're saying them in a way that discredits what we're saying. We should be a peaceable presence and so culture wars and Christian conspiracy theories on politics and deep dives into that stuff, that is, that's no place for a, a Christian. We're, we're peaceable. And, and I want to say, as a young church, your ambition for the kingdom of Jesus can be a beautiful thing, but you can confuse it with your own ambition and even your anxiety, <laughs> So this has been my life in a lot of ways where I'm anxious that my life won't matter. And so I think it's kingdom ambition, but it's actually just anxiety. When I'm in our elder room, I am hands down the most sort of angsty, anxious person there. And it's not because I'm holy, it's because I'm young and that sin hasn't been worked out of me yet. And so I'm learning from them how to be a more peaceable presence. One of the ways I do that is I read stuff that a guy by the name Ray Ortland writes. So Ray is just this old pastor that I just, I just want to be like him. So let me just read you sections from his Twitter feed, which typically 
hearing read you his Twitter feed would be anxiety-inducing for me, but uh, on like someone else's, but Ray's is so, I, okay, I'll just read it. August 10th, something I'm grateful for. We don't have to win arguments. If we will persevere gently through hardship, then our quiet dignity has a way of enhancing the power of our convictions. Not everyone will then agree with us, but we might gain their trust, even their friendship. August 13th, go to sleep in peace. God is awake. Rest well, my friends. August 18th, in a world writhing in pain, and I purpose to be fully engaged and therefore vulnerable to that pain. Still, how kind of God to give me a dog, a dog that loves to lie there as I read Jerome's Latin version of John chapter 7. He was being so relatable, and then he lost most of us there. <laughs> Amazing how improbables converge by his grace. August 19th, Jesus reigns. Everything else might really be as bad as it appears. It might be worse than it appears, but Jesus reigns, and he's going to redeem this mess. Let's never despair. Let's keep going. We can be a part, however small, of his redemption. Do you just feel that that's reasonableness? That's, that's gentleness. That's peaceableness in the world. So speaking of peaceableness, that's the internal result of doing this. Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see, it's the supernatural peace from above. It's the peace of God himself, a peace that you do not have access to in and of yourself. And frankly, if you don't know Jesus, you don't have access to it all. But in him, the supernatural peace can come down on your life and it can just quiet your heart and your mind. This internal state of your world can become resting in the presence of Jesus. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. You can experience that as real, not just abstract. But that peace is fought for. I wanted to make sure I clarify that. It's very real, but it's not just sort of as a Christian kind of hang up your hammock and chill and it's just easy and it comes naturally. You fight for, you, you grind through this type of joy and peace. Um, I, was, I was feeling sort of exhausted and chaotic the other day, so I went to a park just to be in nature and enjoy it. So I was on this little patio in this rocking chair that overlooked some trees and then a lake down beneath. And I started rocking and I started to feel the, the peace come on me. And then the lady sitting next to me that had this tiny dog, that dog started barking for 10 minutes incessantly. I'm not kidding. It did not stop barking, this little yippy dog. And then out on the road, apparently an accident or something like that happened. So sirens just started coming from everywhere. So I'm sitting there looking at a tree and there's just a dog in one ear and sirens in the other ear. And I got frustrated and I was about to leave. And I'm like, I have to have this. Look, it's just been, it's been a stretch. Like I, I need this. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to find me some peace. And it was hard at first, but eventually I was able to just like study a tree and look down at the water and some of those things just started to fade into the background. And so here's what's true. That, that, that moment, that, that peace, it was there the whole time. I was just distracted from it, right? And as I drew my attention back to it, I could experience that peace again. The, the peace of God is always accessible to you. It's just our culture and your sin and your desires and your flesh, they're just screaming at you all the time. And so as a Christian, you, you fight to sort of 
tune those things out and to come back to the peace of God in Jesus Christ and to rest in him. Thinking about this text, I I couldn't help but just thinking about the disciples on the boat with Jesus. Storms, wind and waves, water crashing over the ship. They think they're going to die. And so the seeming logical response in that moment is to freak out and try to fight for their lives. And Jesus is sleeping on the boat. And they were mad. And we would have been too. Because that doesn't make any sense to us. But what they forgot or what they didn't know is the one sitting on the boat controls the wind and the waves. And all it takes is a word from his mouth and peace falls on the wind and the waves and on them. So the logical response in that moment was not to freak out and panic. It would have been to go and sit down by Jesus and say, help. Let's pray. Yeah, we do that right now, Jesus. Um, I just, I confess for myself and on behalf of this church that we don't really believe this, this command. We, we don't believe it's, it's possible or accessible. It feels foreign to us to rejoice always and to never be anxious. But in you, we have access to it. And we, we understand, God, in this life, we're not going to experience that fully. And so we just look forward to heaven. We want to be with you. We want to experience your eternal joy. But we also believe that heaven is breaking in now by your spirit and by your presence with us. And so help us to live in you, trusting and believing in you. And would it change the way we experience the world? And would that start right now as we worship? Let us let go of our, our fears and our failures and Um, the things that are frustrating us, and let us rejoice through worship. That's what we're here to do, God. We love you. Amen.